If this is your first time uh, with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here. Nice to have you in our house. I'm wearing denim this morning uh, because we had a prairie party last night. And so I'm just living in the warm glow of the prairie party. How many of you came to the prairie party last night? Man, can you give it up to Pastor Colin Stoddard, Rory Green, Mandy Arn, Jenna Stoddard. And uh, there was one more that I need to mention. Oh, Shailene Smith, who did just such a tremendous job planning and executing the event last night. I love being part of this community for so many reasons. But one of them is you guys, uh, you guys party like nobody else. And we did the, uh, this prairie party. The first time we did it was last year. It was really Colin's idea. We wanted to throw like a fall festival thing that would be pretty fun. And uh, we didn't know how many people would show up. 225 people came last year. And so many of them were not New Life East people. Just extraordinary. And so we just kind of went after in our little debrief about that afterwards. We went, man, if that's like the way that the Spirit is leading, then we ought to just like make this not like New Life East's prairie party, but like New Life East hosts the prairie party. And let's encourage our community to bring people that don't call New Life East home, even their non-Christian friends, to just come and be with us. So last night we had between 350 and 400 people showed up for it. Amazing. And I don't know about you, but I talked to so many people who aren't a part of our congregation. I talked to people last night who are not Christians were there. And man, I'm telling you, uh, we really, like when you boil down like what congregational life is all about, it's like two things. One, we come together in the presence of God for worship. And two, we welcome people into our midst. And that's a sign of the kingdom because our God is the God who's reconciling all things to himself in Christ. And so to see that happen just warmed the cockles of my pastoral heart. That's the first time I've ever said that word on this platform. Maybe we should retire it. Should we retire it? No, we'll keep going. Whew. That one felt weird to say. Okay, we're in the book of First Timothy. <laughs> Paul is... <laughs> Man, the way things can go on the platform, you know, it is strange. Occupational hazards everywhere. Uh, Paul is writing <laughs> this letter. Among a couple letters, he's writing to young protégés of so 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Part of the collection of letters in the New Testament that we know is the pastoral epistles. And so Paul is writing these letters to young pastors uh, who oversee churches. So Paul, uh, Timothy oversees the congregation in the ancient city of Ephesus. Titus oversees the congregation on the island of Crete. And both of these are young men that Paul had a great deal of affection for. So we talked last week about how faith creates family. And if you were here last week, uh, you probably recall that I only got through two verses of chapter one. That's a new low for me. And, uh, but I did preach this past Friday night uh, for Pastor Daniel, and I covered the entire chapter one. And so uh, if you want the rest of the story, you're going to have to go back there. I have no time to uh, uh, recap that this morning. I'm going to get into chapter two here this morning, but just to re refresh your memory here, uh, Paul gives us some idea of like what his purpose in writing these letters is in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14, when he said, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that. So that's as explicit a statement as you're going to get. This is why I am writing this letter, Paul says, that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to, what does the text say? Conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So this letter, these series of letters, all about what, uh, how are we to regulate our life together as the people of God? So how should we behave? How should we not behave? What are the things that we must believe, given the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead? What are the things that we must avoid believing because they're false? They're less than the reality of God. 
So that's really what this whole letter is about. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, what Paul is going to do is he's going to take really the first environment of the church, and that is this environment. What happens when we gather together for worship? And he sees some disorder in the Ephesian church that he's trying to correct with his words this morning. Before we open the text of Scripture together, let's pray. It's good to know you, God. It's good to be called your sons and daughters. It's good to be in the family of faith. It's good to be part of the household of God. It's good to be named with the name. It's good to be loved by God. And it's so good to know that we are loved by God. And so I pray that this morning we would rest in those realities. Thank you that everything is taken care of for us. And so Jesus says, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you'll wear. Pagans are running after all this stuff. Your father knows what you need. So just seek the kingdom. Seek what God's after. And all of the stuff that you need will be added unto you. So we pray that today, as we learn more of what it means to walk in the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that you'd help us empty ourselves into that. That all the fear and concern about our lives and how it's all going to turn out, that we would just surrender that to you and trust that the world our world, our families, that they're in very strong and capable hands. And I pray that that would give us a sense of freedom and joy this morning. So come. We pray that the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Paul writes, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, I urge then, first of all, everybody say first of all. This is the first and most important thing about what happens when you gather. He says, I urge them, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for, what does the text say? Uh, Some of the people? Uh, Just like a fraction of the people? No, all the people. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And this is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants, what does the text say? Yeah, uh, some of the people? A select group of the people? Just the special people? No, all the people. He wants them all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The heart of God is for all people. For there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for, there it is again, all people. And this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. And I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. And therefore, given that these things are true, I want the men everywhere to pray and lift up holy hands without anger and without disputing. And I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Thanks be to God. Paul says when you gather together for worship, this is the first and the most important thing. What are you going to do when you get together? You're going to pray. He says, I'm urging, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people. That when you get together, you're not rallying together to figure out what you're mad about. That's not why you get together. And when you get together, you're not getting together to figure out how you're going to, you know, take the world for Jesus. That's not what you're doing. When you're getting together for worship, what's the first thing you do? Pray. You're emptying yourself out before the Lord and you're lifting up holy hands in prayer and you're praying for who are you praying for? Are you praying for yourselves? No. 
You're praying for kings and all those in authority. You're praying for all people. You're turning. Think about it. When the church gets together and it's constituted as the church, the first attention of the church is not on the church's own self, but what's the first attention of the church? On the world. And it brings the world before the presence of God. The church can never be a community that exists for itself. Hidden away, tucked away, hunkering down, you know, trying to keep ourselves safe from the world. And we're so glad that we're the chosen people over there and all of those people out there, you know, nana, nana, boo, boo at them and lucky us. That is to defy the very identity of the church. We are a community of people that exist in Christ Jesus. And that means that just as Christ Jesus came among us and poured his whole life out for the sake of the world, he was always the man for others. So the church exists as a community of for others. The church exists for the sake of the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it so well when he said this. He said, the congregation of Jesus Christ is the place at which Christ is believed and obeyed as the salvation of what? Uh, The world. This means that from the outset, the congregation bears responsibility for what? The world that God loved in Christ. And listen to this. He says that if the congregation fails to fulfill this responsibility, what happens? It ceases to be the congregation of Christ. The congregation that has turned its attention inward, that no longer cares about what's going on in society, that no longer is praying for kings and rulers and people in authority, that no longer is having its heart broken for all of those that are in pain and marginalized, all of those that are forgotten, all of those that are hungry and thirsty. The church that has forgotten about all of that is the church that has given up its identity as the church. We are called to be a people, first and foremost, of prayer. Think about the ministry of Jesus. All Four gospel writers record this moment in the ministry of Jesus that he comes into the temple. Think about this. You remember this moment? And he sees that there are all these people in the temple and they're selling doves and they're exchanging money and there's just a bunch of commerce kind of is happening. There's like this secularization almost of the temple that's taking place. And you remember what Jesus did? He made a whip out of cords. I mean, he just like went crazy. Makes a whip out of cords. He's snapping that whip at people, you know, and he takes the tables of the money changers and flings them over, you know, and everybody's like, whoa, right? You're not you when you're hungry, man. <laughs> like, settle down, bro. And, but what does he say? He began to teach them and say to them, is it not written? My house will be called, what? A house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. But Jesus is like, don't you understand? You've forgotten the whole purpose of why you exist. God has called you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That means that you mediate the presence of God to the world and you bring the great concerns of the world into the presence of God. Because you've forgotten all of that, which means that you've forgotten who you are. This house is to be called the house of prayer. for, And that's precisely what Paul is saying. The first way... I think that we fulfill our call to be a church that exists for the sake of the world is by being a house of prayer. So Paul says, and I love that so much about New Life Church. One of my favorite things about it, that in the nearly 40-year history of this church, we have been a house of prayer. First and foremost, prayer has always been the first move of this place. And it sustained us through all of our highs and lows, many crises over the years, that we have made that first move prayer and everything else follows from it. And I remember Several years ago now, March of 2020, when the world went into lockdown because of COVID-19 and we had that first weekend where we did online services and nobody was really sure, like, how is this going to go? Is this going to last two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, two and a half years? (laughs) How long is it going to be? And I'll never forget, we had those online services and then the pastoral team got together in Pastor Brady's office. And I love 
Pastor Brady, the senior pastor over all of our congregations. I love him for so many reasons, but one of the reasons that, uh, one of the things that makes me so fond of him is uh, he's like, um, Pastor Brady Boyd is like, uh, he's like a Christian, uh, more, slightly more sanctified, I think Winston Churchill is what he is. Like this wartime leader, crisis leader, like when the stakes go up, he just gets clear, more clear-minded and better. And so we're all a little bit panicky about what is it going to be like and what are we going to do? And we get together in Brady's office Tuesday morning, you know, and he goes, gentlemen, good morning. Good to see you. Here's the plan. We're going to do online services, you know, weekend services for the foreseeable future. We're going to start making phone calls to everybody in our congregation to make sure that everybody is okay. We're going to make sure that we've got food provided for people that are hungry. And we're going to make sure that every single Wednesday night, even though we can't gather in person, we're going to have worship Wednesdays at the main sanctuary over there. And we'll get a dozen, dozen and a half people, the worship team, and a few pastoral folks to get up there and just lead an hour-long online streamed service. And we're going to do that until the Holy Spirit tells us to stop. Why? Because God has called us to be a house of prayer. And I'm so grateful that we did that. You know, that when we stepped into that, how long is this going to last? A month, two months, three months? And man, that year wound up being a terrible year. (laughs) And not only did COVID-19 last longer than we expected, but all of the pressure that that put on our culture all of a sudden started exposing the worst stuff about us. And not only were we dealing with this public health crisis, but all of a sudden the political polarization just went crazy during 2020. And then you'll remember there were these awful things, shootings that happened that caused race riots all of a sudden, the cities that had been so pressurized. Now we got people marching in the streets. And if all of that wasn't enough, you had so many voices in the church that were calling for the church to take a side one way or another, right? Are you pro-mask, anti-mask? Are you pro-vax, anti-vax? Black Lives Matter, is that a real thing or is that not a real thing? Should we embrace that? Should we avoid that? All of that. And you know what I love about New Life Church? We didn't get involved in any of that noise. Didn't get involved in any of it because it's just divisive. Just divisive. You know what we did do? We stood up every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night and we said, come, let us worship the Lord. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep under his care. And every time there was a new eruption in culture, this thing happening, that thing happening, loud voices telling us that we needed to take sides. What did we do? We stood up and we said, let's lift our hands, holy hands in prayer without, as Paul says, anger or disputing. But we're going to do the first move here is we're going to take all of this stuff into the presence of God. We're not picking a side. We're praying for all the leaders and all those in authority. And it doesn't matter if we agree with their politics or not. Because Paul does not discriminate in this text, does he? He doesn't say you go ahead and pray for the kings that you happen to like. Or the rulers in authority that you happen to have voted for. Because of course nobody voted in the first century. Kings and all those in authority. If they're in charge, you're praying for them. That is your obligation as a baptized member of the body of Christ. And we did that over and over and over again. And what it did is it allowed us not just to transcend the noise, but also to be a transformative presence inside of the noise. Friends, I think that whenever we have stuff happening in culture that's crazy, lots of energy kind of raging through the culture, we have a few different responses that we can engage in. Number one, I think that one of the things that we can do, all the energy, all the anger, all the noise in culture, is we can amplify it. And so we feel all that stuff that's happening in culture, and we respond from our flesh in a way that feels good to us. 
And so we amplify the noise in some way. We add to it. We pick a side. We come up with a great argument about why the other side is wrong and all of that. And so we amplify all the noise. What we do is we wind up adding much more heat to the conversation and not enough light to the conversation. We amplify it. And I want to say something to you this morning. This is a wrong response. Some of you do this habitually and chronically, and that's a pattern of sin in your life that you need to repent of. You are a baptized member of the body of Christ, which means that, among other things, you are called not to be dictated by the energy of the culture, but instead you dictate to it out of the energy of the Spirit of God. Romans 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but... Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what is the will of God, is good, pleasing, and perfect will. Your mind has been renewed, and so in the middle of any situation, you can start to see where is God and where is not God in this. Amplifying the energy of culture is forbidden as a member of the body of Christ. Don't do it. Number two, what you can do, and I think this is much godlier, is you can ground that energy. Now, if you know anything about electricity, you know that in any building you have a grounding wire, What does that grounding wire do? If there's an electrical surge in the building, it takes all of that extra energy, and what does it do? Into the ground. Have you experienced this in your prayer life? This is actually one of the great importances of prayer, I think, is that we're hit with this energy, and we come into the presence of God, and so much of that energy that we were tempted to respond in kind about, all of a sudden, we just, we've buried it in the ground. And now, the destructive forces of that energy, they're not released back into the world, but they're put somewhere else. That, I think, guys, is one of the great roles of the church in society, is that we're like the grounding wire of society. That when everybody else is losing their ever-loving minds, what does the church do? The church goes, God, here it is. Hey, what's your mind? What are you saying, God? Is this something that you need us to respond to? Oh, it's not? Oh, that's not a real thing? That's just an empty illusion that everybody's mad about? Oh, okay. Thank you, God. And all of a sudden, in little pockets, all over the state, all over the country, all over the world, there are places where that demonic energy is grounded. It's exhausted. That's part of your responsibility. So we can amplify it, and that's forbidden to us. We can ground it. I think that's better. But here's the best thing of all that happens is that we creatively transform it. That the energy comes to us and the energy is a real energy because there are things that are happening that need to be responded to. And so we receive that energy, but we take it into the presence of God. And all of a sudden, instead of us responding anger with anger or vitriol with vitriol, we receive that energy and we carry it up before the Spirit of God. We metabolize it in its way. And then we start going, wait, so this is what the mind of God is about this thing. I see how everybody else is making this a zero-sum game or drawing the dividing lines here and there, but that's not what I'm going to do because I'm a sanctified member of the body of Christ. So I'm going to step into this situation and I'm going to engage the situation at a level that's different. Think about how many times in the ministry of Jesus, people would come to him and go, Master, what do you say about this thing? And he'd go, well, have you ever thought about, and there's something about the posture of Jesus shifted the whole groundwork of the conversation. I think that's the call of the church, not to be conquered by all the energy of our culture, but to creatively transform it so that we can be a transforming presence in the world. Think about what the great desert fathers, Abba said. He said that prayer is the seed of 
and the absence of anger. And I know there are a lot of us that think that anger is a really great instrument for getting the work of God done in the world. And to that extent, we're very wrong. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, Do not, my brothers and sisters, be angry. And do you know why? The wrath of man, he says, does not produce the righteous life that God desires. Not like uh, it's sometimes, in extreme situations, you know, generally it doesn't produce the righteous life that God desires. What does James say? The wrath of man, oh, but I mean, it, things are so different now, pastor. You know, in the first century, they had it a lot easier. Did they? It's all so different now. Do you remember that part in the Bible where it talks about how like there's nothing new under the sun? The wrath of man is never going to produce the righteous life that God desires. Not ever. The fruits of the Spirit, though. Give those guys a try. Paul says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty, the pulling down of strongholds. You know what those weapons are? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. Paul writes, there is no law. But pastor, you'll say, you yourself just mentioned a little bit ago about how Jesus went to the temple and he flipped over those tables and he made the whip out of cords and he was kind of snapping that at people, you know, and Jesus got plenty angry and it seemed like he got a lot of stuff done. And um, so I think that we should be able to do that sometimes too. Okay. You know, there's like a huge difference, though, between you and the Son of God. And if I have to explain what that is to you, you may be beyond help. I do think, just to be fair, that there are times when we need to, there is like, a, think about the prophets in the Old Testament, appropriate expressions of righteous anger. But anger is so powerful a thing that you have to be an especially sanctified person to wield it in the right way. Because when God expresses his wrath, he never leaves collateral damage. When Jesus flips over the tables, he's acting with surgical precision. He knows exactly what he's doing. And by and large, we don't. We leave messes everywhere. So the wrath of man doesn't produce the righteous life that God desires. And what God has called us to do is to be a people that creatively transform what's happening in the culture. This is why Paul says, first of all, when you get together, this is what you're going to do. New Life East, would you commit to being such a people? Okay, because I'm committed to that too. Here's the second thing I want to say to you. We're going to move into a tough bit of text here. And this is Paul's instructions for how women are to behave in the church and what their place is in the church. And uh, I want to say two things to you by way of caveat before we go ahead and plunge into this text. Number one, let me say this to you. What you believe about women in ministry and women's place in the church is not a test of doctrinal orthodoxy. I didn't get enough amens on that. But. <laughs> one way or another, if you believe, believe that women are supposed to be completely silent in the church, or if you think that they, the full range of their gifts and capacity should be expressed in the church, it's not a test of doctrinal orthodoxy. It just isn't. 
Think about the creed that we said earlier. I didn't see anything in there on women in ministry, did you? So it's not. And so if you hear people out there that are trying to make this issue the kind of, okay, well, this is how you know if somebody's really following, in Je- following Jesus, put a question mark over the rest of what you hear them saying. I'm serious. And you should weigh out their arguments, but that person is not being honest. They're not being true to Scripture because Scripture doesn't make it a litmus test of orthodoxy, number one. Number two, though, I'll just say this, that I think this is a really important issue. And I think that really profound things that have to do with our identity as the people of God do hang on it. Do we believe that God has made men and women equal in his own eyes? And is that idea, if we do believe that, is that a meaningful concept in the church? In other words, can women do all the same things that, that men can do? Or do they have to check a great deal of who they are at the door to come and play by the rules of the church? That really is the question. With that, let's get into the text of Scripture. Here it is. Paul writes, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I don't permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety, brothers and sisters, even this is the word of the Lord. Then all God's people said. The text, I think, should strike our ears as strange. And that's not because we're enlightened moderns who know better than the Bible. The text should strike our ears as strange precisely because we have been reading the Bible. When you think about the text of the Old Testament, for instance, we'll just start there. Men and women are created equally in the eyes of God. Genesis chapter 1. He made them. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them both. Both men and women are bearers of the image and the likeness of God. Or you think about the way the Old Testament text proceeds. There are profound personalities, female personalities, that rise up as really significant leaders in Israel. You think about Miriam, who led alongside her brother, brother Aaron. Or better yet, you think about Deborah, the great prophet, who led Israel at a time when Israel really needed help. All of a sudden, Deborah rises up. Even more than that, you might consider the book of Proverbs. Think about how the person of wisdom is characterized in Proverbs. It's characterized as what? A woman. And what is she doing? She's teaching the sons of Israel how to follow Yahweh God. So even though in the Old Testament, like the cultural milieu is more or less patriarchal, there was kind of an atmosphere of that, there are all of these little things in the Old Testament text that begin to tell against that greater narrative uh, and towards what I think is the great redemptive narrative of God in Scripture. When you get to the Gospels, this elevation of women, it actually gets more profound with Jesus. You think about how a woman, Mary, is called to bear the Messiah. She's the Theotokos, as the ancients called it, the God-bearer. And she doesn't have a passive role with Jesus, does she? But the Son of God himself is instructed at Mary's knee. Mary taught God. (laughs) You think about how wealthy women play a key role in the ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter 8. You think about how Mary and Martha, do you remember that great story? They host Jesus in their house and Jesus is there teaching all these people and Martha is off making the preparations and working in the kitchen and she gets frustrated because what is Mary doing? Well, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And when we read that text as 21st century folks, so far removed from the first century cultural context, we read that and we go, oh, sweet, precious Mary. She's sitting there at Jesus' feet and she's all dewy-eyed, you know, at Jesus, it's Jesus. 
you know what it means to sit at the feet of a rabbi? You're enrolled in their school. You're sitting at the feet of the master because you want to learn everything that the master is teaching so that one day, what? You also can teach other people. And so there is Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And does Jesus rebuke her? Far from it. What Jesus does, he turns to Mary and he says, Martha, and he says, Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken away from her. Right? It's like a go and do likewise kind of, you think about Mary Magdalene. She winds up being the apostle to the apostles. She's the first person, a woman is the first person to witness the resurrection. And she goes and she bears witness to the apostles. She teaches them. She preaches the gospel for the first time to this group of men that just don't get it. Dorothy Sayers, a contemporary friend of C.S. Lewis's and one of the great thinkers of the 20th century, wrote this. She said, perhaps it's no wonder that the women were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. Never had there been such another, a prophet and a teacher who never nagged them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized them, who never made jokes about them, never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny or odd about a woman's nature. Why do we see so many women around Jesus? Because Jesus welcomed them and blessed them and elevated them in every conceivable way. And the early church continued this. Women everywhere in the New Testament play a pivotal role in the leadership of the early church. Think about Romans 16, 7. A woman by the name of Junia is called an apostle. You can go read that for yourself. Philip one of the great leaders of the early church has four unmarried daughters who prophesy, Acts 21.9. Priscilla, think about the great couple in the early church, Priscilla and Aquila. Generally, Priscilla is mentioned first, Priscilla and Aquila, and both of them are excellent teachers. They teach many of the great teachers of the church. They instruct them in the faith. Phoebe, in the book of Romans chapter, one, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Phoebe is called a deacon and a leader or a ruler of the church in Kentria. So they're ruling the church, they're prophesying, and they're teaching men. So the evidence, the biblical evidence, tells us that women led at every conceivable level in the early church. And that, by the way, is in keeping with the way that Paul talks about what God has accomplished for us in Christ. Galatians 3 and verse 28. Paul says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all. So what's going on in 1 Timothy chapter 2? All of this evidence, the redemptive trajectory of God is going this direction. And all of a sudden we get this odd bit of text in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we have to ask ourselves, has Paul here at the end of his life changed his mind? Has he reversed course? Or maybe just the situation of being in prison, you know, has just become so extreme for him that the old man has just kind of gone out of his head crazy. He's lost his mind, forgot what he said and seen and witnessed. And I don't think any of that is true. I think that the text as it stands, because it's so different from what we see, we have to ask ourselves what's going on in the cultural background. And here's the key to the text, that when Paul says, I don't permit in verse 12, the Greek verb there is epitrepo. Can I hear you say epitrepo? The better translation is not, I do not permit, but the better translation is actually, I am not permitting. It's in the active mood. 
which means that what Paul is doing here is he's not giving a decree for all time, but he's speaking circumstantially about something that's happening in Ephesus. So then the question is, what's going on in first century culture that makes Paul in this situation say these things? And there are two things that I think, two streams are coming together, and Paul is responding to both of these streams. Number one, here's a couple things that we know were going on in the first century. Number one, we know that there was this phenomenon in Roman society that was erupting, emerging called the new woman. And scholars have tracked this trend through the first century. And basically, it was a sexual revolution among the wealthy where women started flouting old sexual and cultural norms. Generally, this new woman thing tended to be pretty promiscuous. And the women started incorporating the dress of prostitutes in their normal attire that they were wearing in the marketplace. Which, by the way, all of that is probably behind what Paul says about how the women are to dress in worship. That he's not saying, hey, you know, when you come to worship, look shabby. That's glorifying to God. What he's saying is this whole thing that's going on in culture that's so toxic and so unhealthy, don't bring that into the house of God. This bizarre sexual revolution that's turning everything on its head and is perverting everything and is hurting lots of people, don't, no, 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 no. Don't have anything to do with that, which is, which is why Paul is saying what he's saying here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But also, we have this letter written to Timothy, who is pastoring in what ancient city? Ephesus. And you know what was going on in Ephesus at this time? The Temple of Artemis, the Artemis cult. Artemis, the Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Artemis was a fertility deity. She was the goddess of a female-only cult. And she had a reputation of being aggressively anti-male. It was like this whole like toxic masculinity 20 centuries ahead of time. The men are the ones that messed this up. The men are the ones that screwed everything up. And the, the world will be saved through the female. And so only women served Artemis. And Artemis, female followers of Artemis, also then served her out of fear for their own lives and the lives of their children. If I pay homage to Artemis because she's the fertility deity, then Artemis will protect me when I'm bearing children, which is behind Paul's remarks when he says that the, that the women will be saved through childbearing. You ever read that verse before and gone like, surely that's the most bizarre and heretical thing I've ever heard. But Paul, the guy who says that we're saved by grace through faith, all of a sudden is saying, by grace, yes, and through faith, yes, and also if you have some babies... Paul's not turning his doctrine on his head here. Do you know what Paul is saying? He's saying to the women, if you seek shelter with Jesus Christ, he will keep you safe in childbearing. You don't need to rely on Artemis anymore. And that whole like thing where you're sort of putting men down, you don't need to do that. That word there, I don't permit women to teach or to have authority over men. That word for have authority over, it's only used one time in the New Testament. It's only used here. And it's a really rare word that means not so much like have authority over, but like domineer over. And that's what was going on in the temple of Artemis, the Artemis cult. So Paul, to these women, is not saying to them, hey, I don't want you to domineer over men because the men are supposed to domineer over you. Do you know what Paul is saying? We're the church. Nobody domineers over anybody. All of that's been done away with. So all of that stuff that you learned from Artemis, I get it. You needed it. 
It works for you for a second, but Jesus is so much better. And you can come and find refuge with Jesus. And he'll actually help your full femininity come to expression. Just give it a minute. Sit. Learn. Forget all of the stuff that Rome gave you and Artemis gave you. And learn the better way, the kingdom of God. I think that this is what Paul is saying to the women in Ephesus. I think he's saying something like this. I think he's saying, ladies, Christ welcomes you here. And so do we. The church is a social miracle. The old hierarchies have been done away with, which means that your future is very bright here. You have learned some strange things from Rome and from Artemis. Now is the time to unlearn those things, to take up the yoke of Jesus Christ. And in time, you will teach and you will lead in this community. I am confident of that. Until then, take a load off your feet. Rest. Learn, Christ isn't rushing you, and neither are we. So I'm going to, can I get an amen from somebody? I just need to know I'm not alone up here. I want to say two things in conclusion, then we'll head to the table here. Number one, to the women in the house, especially those of you that have been wounded by teaching that I would consider sub-biblical. I am so sorry that that happened to you. I'm sorry that you were diminished. I'm sorry that you felt like a second-class citizen. I'm sorry that you felt like you had to check a great deal of who you were at the door to belong to Jesus and his people. And I can promise you this, that is not going to happen in this house. Christ Jesus calls you. Christ Jesus loves you. Christ Jesus gave his gifts to you. And we will be a worse version of ourselves if we don't have the full range of your gifts expressed in this place. All that you are and all that you bring to the table, it is safe here. And we welcome it here. And now I have a word to say to the guys in this house. If you diminish the women here, you'll have me to tangle with. This is the word of the Lord. Let's stand and prepare our hearts for communion this morning. And Tim Mazza, and he's a, he's a tough customer. Come on, family, let's lift our hands to the heavens here. Jesus, here we are as your people. We're baptized members of the body of Christ. But some of the old habits and ways of thinking, they die hard in us. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you this, for this reminder from your word of what you have called us to be. And thank you for the continued reminder of the table that reminds us that in Christ Jesus, the partition has been broken down. All of the old divisions are done away with and all of the old hierarchies have been smashed. We all, as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, stand on level ground before the cross. And so here we are. Nobody's coming in here with reputation and status all self-righteousness crumbles at the cross of Jesus Christ. We've all fallen to pieces before you and we'll all pick back up before you. And we thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're making this house to be a house, uh, to be a house, a place where all that we are and all that we bring to the table, each and every one of us, it's welcomed, it's blessed. God is glorified through it. The world is blessed through it. And so we receive the grace of God here. And we remember 
that on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus, after he given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. I do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus, here we are before you, offering up bread and cup. And asking that by the power of your Holy, Holy Spirit, you would fill it and fill our experience of these elements with the mystery and the magnitude of your presence so that they might become for us a real entanglement with you, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant it. Save us, we pray this morning, through the gift of yourself. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, but invite our servers to come forward to serve communion. This morning, we'll have four stations up front here. All the elements are gluten-free. So you come forward, you're going to exit your row to the right, and then come forward and receive the, the cracker, dip it in the juice, and then you can head back. You can either take communion on your way back to your seat, or you can take it with your friends and family back in your row. So exit on the right and come on through. Yeah. Did I say that right, guys? Did I do it right? Okay. I'm going to say it one more time to make it Trinitarian. You're going to exit to your right, and then you're going to receive, and then you're going to dip, and it's going to be amazing. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for us to make us the people of God. Come forward and receive communion. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone I'm no longer a slave to fear I am a child of God I'm no longer slave to I am a child of God. From my mother's womb, you have chosen me. And love flowed through my name And I've been born again Into your family Your blood flows through my veins No longer I'm no longer a slave to me I am a child
wrap up our time together by singing the doxology. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. New Life East, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Guys, thank you so much for joining us this Sunday. We hope you guys have a great week. We will see you next weekend. Don't forget, stop by in Connect Central. Talk to Pastor Christy Duncan about how you can support people in Guatemala. We'll see you guys next weekend.